Welcome to the Agile Wire, where professional scrum trainers Jeff Bubbles and Jeff Molesky discuss agile topics. Now, here are your hosts, Jeff Bubbles and Jeff Molesky. And we are recording. All right, Mr. Bubbles, kick us off, man. All right, so this week we've got Al Shalloway on the podcast with us. So, Al, I could butcher an introduction for you, but I'd rather have you just do it. So, could you just like let our listeners know who you are, give them a little background on yourself? Yeah, sure. Well, most people know me as the CEO and founder of Net Objectives and uh, co-founder of Lincoln Kanban University and uh, early contributor to Safe. And now I'm not any of these. <laughs> I, I sold uh, basically Net Objectives or the IP anyway to the PMI, and I'm now the director of thought leadership of Agile at Scale programs. I left LKU, which is now Kanban University, several years ago, and uh, I'm not doing anything with Safe. Although I am actually creating a what I call the Flex playbook for Safe. Flex is the system that I started writing up about two, three years ago uh, based on what NetObjectives had been doing since around 2005 when we got into Agile at scale. And I decided, well, we really need to codify this. I'd written things, but I'd never made it a full system. So that's kind of what I've been doing the last 20 years. People know me NetObjectives and from the last 15 know me about an Agile person. But uh, from 1970 to, to about 2005, I was a heavy developer. I mean, I, I've written technical books, uh, heavy in design patterns, uh, test first, XP, um, which I don't do as much only because there's only 24 hours a day and I do sleep a little bit and I've got a wife who loves me <laughs> and always is on my case to spend more time with her, which I totally love. That's what I need. We've been together over 30 years. Uh, but so I don't spend a lot of time on the technical stuff, but it's all interrelated, actually. Uh, interestingly enough, one of the things I learned on patterns is is, is my, our patterns book. I wrote a book called Design Patterns Explained, two editions of it in, with Jim Trot. And what we did is we didn't talk about patterns like your solutions. Uh, we talked about why are they good? You know, what's underneath them? What's the model underneath it? And um, since I'm saying this, I'll highly recommend the book uh, by Chris Alexander called Timeless Way of Building. Everybody else recommends a pattern language. But to me, that's like, OK, I got all these patterns. You care. Timeless Way of Building is the whole design approach underneath it. And one of the interesting things is I found from when I first read that, that that design approach works everywhere. I've been trying to disprove it for 23 years. And I say that not because I don't like it, but that's what I tend to do. I take something I like and I try to disprove it and I learn more. And most things I can, but this one has been around. It's like every time I use it, it's like, <coughs> excuse me. It's not COVID. No worries, guys. I got allergies. <laughs> uh, so it's, it's like I bring them both together. The technical yeah. It, I mean, I know a little bit about your career from what I followed and, you know, just being a part of the Agile community. And it seems like to me that your career has really evolved and embraced that, like first line of the Agile manifesto of like, we're finding better ways of developing software by doing them. And you've, you've seemed like you've done that throughout your career. Like you've, you've tried a lot of different things and you found better ways as you've done them. Would you, would you say that's true? Yeah, it, it's true. And, and it's funny because I've just always been kind of a lifelong learner as people say, but uh, to give a slightly uh, not oh positive way I, I forget i forget somebody i forget the the materially what pulled from but it was a personality thing and part of my personality is i feel responsible you know it's just i come from responsibility and when you have that if something goes wrong then well how do i fix it how do i learn you know 
So like when Scrum was good and I started with it, it was like, yeah, but that's not working so well. So what do I do? What do I do? And there's a certain, um, I don't know, aggravation, <laughs> tension to that because it's like a certain never satisfied. And I think after now I'm like 67, you know, I'm getting more calm about it. But it, it is like that. It's like I just always want to do better. To me, the world's a puzzle and the work I do is uh, is just this big problem. And you solve one thing and then you want to solve another thing. And it's about never being satisfied at some level while you appreciate what you're doing. Um, so, yeah, the, I love that first line of the manifesto. You know, now we're discovering new ways. And and it's I've I've gotten a lot of grief for the fact that, you know, I haven't I don't follow the manifesto, the rest of it, because the rest of it, I think, is too team centric. I think it's um, I think it, and there's some damage in that. That's taking place. Now, I don't mean manage. See, people always take things zero or one, you know, like Don Reinertsen, one of my mentors and friends, he's just, just love the guy. We were at a conference where people were talking about this or that. And it was like this or that, this or that. And he, he made this comment. These guys have been around zeros and ones too long. Uh, <laughs> it's not this or that. You know, it's like there's, there's a middle ground here, yeah. you know? So, so when you get to extreme, um, you know, and I thought the extremity was focusing on on the team. And, and I don't mean to say this in a in a disrespectful way. I can I can still remember one of the most embarrassing moments in my career. And fortunately, nobody noticed. That's actually the good thing. I've had some really embarrassing moments and nobody notices them. But one of my very first talks was on design patterns. And I remember the slide I put up had this whole all it was, if you looked at from the start to the end, it was this super narrow focus on design. It was after requirements and before tests. This was before I got into tests first and stuff. And somebody made a comment. It says, Al, shouldn't you be paying attention to more than just the design? And I said something nice and like, yes, of course. And if we do, and I don't mean it, but to me, it was like, oh man, she nailed me. You know, I'm not really. Just look at what I came up with, you know? And, and it's like, I started out super narrow. And now I'm actually kind of super broad with things. Mm -hmm. So I, I tell people, look, I'm not telling you all what to do because I notice other people doing the wrong thing. I mean, I've been doing this wrong for how long has it been? 50 years. You know, I've been doing software mm -hmm. for 50 years. And, and um, it took me about 40 years to get over worrying about when I discovered I was doing something wrong. <laughs> Mm -hmm. I mean, it always bothered me. I thought, oh, God, why was I doing this? And I'd run myself a guilt trip, make myself wrong. And eventually I just, I mean, 40, you know, it's, I'm talking like 10 years ago after doing this for 40 years, you know, it's like, that's a long time. And I still beat myself up. So that's our tendency. Um, and it's, it's a learning. How do we get better and how do we find joy in that to me? Uh, but how do we acknowledge that um, we, we have our cognitive bias. In fact, I said something funny today. I, it's kind of so obvious, but. I used to think that if you notice that you have cognitive bias, you're free of it. That's such bullshit. Mm -mm. You know, you still have your cognitive bias. You just recognize it's there. You're not at any less of the effect of it just because you know you have some. Right. And I realized, man, I've been pretending. I notice it, so I'm free of it. And that's just wrong. No, I have it, and it's there. And part of that is the cognitive bias kind of sets what I guess we call normal. You know, it's not just our belief system, but... It's uh, it's like this is the way it is. You know, this is the way it is. Oh, this is okay because that's the way it is. Uh, like I, I think I was mentioning this one where I was on this 
saw this Twitter thread about convergent, deconvergent methods with UX, and we have to waste all this time and all that. And yeah, I know that's how it is. I mean, I've, in fact, somebody asked me, said, have you ever done UX design? Like she wasn't, she was respectful because off line, she told mm-hmm. me, she wasn't asking me like I wasn't competent. She was asking me like, had I seen it? You know what I mean? Right. Which is a valid question. But to back, just to back that up for the listeners, just I want to, the thread started with something like, I think the UX person was saying something along the lines of like, um, to get the right UX, you need to throw 90% of it away, like create yeah. everything and throw 90% away. And you said something yeah. like, no, you don't. <laughs> like, yeah, I, I was like, you got to find a better design method, you know. Yeah, and and it, and she was being coy. I mean, they were not coy is wrong. It was like they were just, you know, you know how dads yeah. sometimes get together and you complain a little. Be bit. a little edgy, yeah. Yeah, so she was being cheeky, and yeah, and I just jumped in. So I don't mean there was anything wrong with what she said, but it got me thinking. It said, "How many places do we just accept crap because we just do because it's normal." And people say they're coerced by, the, if you talk to devs, they say they're coerced by their boss. And, and I'm saying, no, <laughs> you're cutting the corners. Uh, you know, he, you know, you're cutting the corners to go faster. And what started all this was when you and I were on Twitter and we were talking about, I, I noticed your byline, which was about, you know, not suffering. And I used to have that. My, when I formed that objectives, the byline of that objectives was effective software development without suffering. And I, for a long time, have been trying to go from stating things in a negative, like no suffering, to what's the opposite of no suffering? Well, to me, it's joy or peace or something like that. So I made some comment back and we chatted a little bit. And and it's related. It's about responsibility. It's about accountability. I think you brought up that, you know, I have had, I, I remember my wife usually comes with me when I travel, which right now I'm not doing, but but I can remember days coming back. You know, and she, I'm so glad she's there because I'm so beat. It's like every bit of me is gone and I need somebody to just tell me I'm okay. And, and if I would describe that, she would think I had a horrible day. And I was like, no, it's wonderful. I just had left all I had in the classroom. Yeah. So it all the court, right? And you had that, right? Yeah, exactly. That's not suffering. It was hard. I needed to rest. So, so effort and pain even is not suffering. So I think suffering is when you're at the effect, when you're not being responsible. And, um, and, and I think part of that is when we just take on a bad normal as the way it has to be. And I, I don't know, I guess just recently, I mean, I've been fighting against the bad normal as the way it has to be for years. But the nice thing about working at the PMI, there are a lot of nice things. And, and, you know, it is the PMI. It's a big company. I'm not used to it. Um, it took me about six months to get used to not being the boss. I'm at the bottom guy. I mean, I got managers above me all over the place. Fortunately, they're good managers, but, and I do love our CEO. Sunil is just amazing. Um, But it's not like all of a sudden I get there and it's transformed because, you know, light comes out of me or whatever. No, I'm not even sure when I was at net objectives, that was, well, in fact, I know that wasn't the case. I was not really an enlightened manager. I just thought it was Uh, one of my insights. (laughs) Now that I'm in a bigger company, but but it, it's that it's it's that at, at the PMI, I can actually really work on the problem. I don't have to work on existence. And I mean, we did OK at net objectives. I mean, you know, 20 years is a good, good run. But but there was always that working on existence. You know what I mean? Not always, but most of the time it was there. So now I'm able to look at, well, what do we really need to do? You know, from a technical point, I'm not running the company. I'm not doing what uh, Richard Sheridan is doing at Menlo Innovations and Joy Inc. comes to mind as we talk because 
that's what he's explicitly up to. And he inspired me years and years ago when that book first came out and I read it because he says a lot of stuff that I believed, but I had heard very few people have the nerve and courage to say. Um, and implement, and, right? A lot of people say it, but not too yeah. many people actually implement it. And like they yeah. live it every single day when you go there. And, and you know, what's interesting, one of the other things I really love about the way Menlo Innovations work is, um, you know, we chatted a little bit also about the Agile Manifesto. And now I l- really loved it when it came out, mostly. There always been, I'm actually probably the only guy, by the time I decided I would sign it, they'd closed off signatures. I've never signed the Agile Manifesto. <laughs> And there was a reason I didn't sign the Agile Manifesto. And, and the reason was, and it was probably my OCD. I've, I've got a math theoretical, I've got three backgrounds. I've got a theoretical math background. I've got an engineering background. And I've got a psychology background. Um, and and uh, that makes for an interesting thought process. But the mathematics sometimes shows up a little too OCD. And to me, software development has always been more about systems, not just teams. And that process isn't inherently bad, but it's, it, I mean, when it becomes the lead, it's not good. Uh, but, but process is like a tool and people over process, I know what the intention was, but I get a little OCD in how you say things. It's really the two together. Uh, you have process that supports people that people create to support them. And if you don't have it, you have great people at times and really crappy process and it really is bad. And, um, you know, you create Deadwood that way. You put people in a bad process. Now, in 19, in rather uh, 2001, when it came out, it was process-centric, it was heavy, it was bad, and I knew what they meant. But I, I, I guess for me, it was more my righteousness. And, you know, I've, I've toned down my, I'm still probably arrogant, but it's not as bad as it was. Uh, and I was like, that to me was a talking point. How do you have people truly own things? And how do you, though, recognize reality and uh we've seen an over overstatement of this in fact i'd be kind of interested and i'd be interested in your but let me say what this is and then i'd be interested in your take on this is there's been this buzz up until about a year or two ago now a new buzz has surpassed it that i like and the buzz was about oh we companies should just be networks of teams teams roll you get teams working together just a network and they always point to semco which is an amazing company or they point to open source, which is amazing. But what people forget is open source didn't just come spontaneously. You know, you had people who set it up. Even open spaces don't come spontaneously. I've never been through an open space where people just come together and you let see what happens. No, there's this, there's all these people who did all this work to create the environment that you're working in. I mean, I put on open open spaces. There's a lot of work there. And there's a leadership there and there's all this environment there. And Semco had their leader and, you know, Linux had Linus Torvalds. And, and you, you've got this lack of appreciation for structure and systems. And you see it in the manifesto. You see it talks about teams 18 or 19 times. It doesn't talk about management, not even once. Business once or twice, customer once. It's team, 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 team. So then all of a sudden this network, I know it's all network. I'm saying, okay, this is great. We'd love to have it, but where does it happen? And um, and then recently, in the last couple of years, now people are talking about like Age of Agile, Steve Denning. I, I love Steve Denning, both as an individual. Uh, I mean, he's smart. He's got ethics. Uh, he writes well. He's personable. I mean, I mean, there are not that many people like that. 
And I just love him. And in his book, Age of Agile, how I recommend, he talks about, yeah, you need this team. You need the network. You need the focus on the customer. And then everybody is subservient to that, yes, but they're there to support the team, but it's not just the team. You have this business, you have all this. And he talks about that you need that. It's not like you just have the network and that's it. You know, and I thought in Team of Teams by McChrystal, everybody's talking about all oh, this network. It's all great. And then I read it and I said, wait a moment, guys. That's not what this book is about. This book is about how do you set up an environment so you have this group of networks that get your job done. But it's all about, it's not about the teams. It's all about the information and the structure and how you be a leader. You know, so anyway, I'm wondering what your thoughts are on that. Cause I, I've been a little, you know, deep in on things like that. Yeah. I mean, I think that you have to have a vision of where you're going and have alignment on that. You have to have clear boundaries of what is okay and what isn't okay. And then you have to have a shared accountability. Now, yes. if you have that in a network, that's great. If you could do it in a hierarchy. Okay. Uh, but can you reconfigure your current organization to tackle the biggest business problem that that arises? So um, I worked for a company recently. I'll just tell you this quick story. Um, and the traditional company had been doing everything very, very traditional waterfall. And we had something come up where uh, a big vendor, uh, this is a Fortune 500 company, um, they said, we're not going to do this anymore for you. We're not going to collect your payments for you. And we're not going to send you that money. And this whole process kind of went out the door this middle of, I don't know, it's maybe February, March and, um, of last year, two years ago. And they were like, okay, how do we, how can we, we don't have any budget for this. We haven't planned for this. How do we reconfigure our teams to solve this problem? And they were able to do it in about three weeks, spin up a couple teams. I think it was like three teams to work on it and align on how they were going to actually do it. And they executed it well before they had to, before they, you know, so they could still get paid, like, you know, get their cash flow. And in the past, that would have taken them probably about six months to do, I would guess. That's what, when I talk with other leaders, that's what it would have taken before we had started anything in the agile space. I think getting that to smaller and smaller numbers where you can readjust your organization to solve whatever business problem comes up, that's really the goal. Yeah. Um, that's, you know, to be very responsive to change. And it's about the whole organization being responsive, not just one team yeah. or IT or something like that. Jeff, yeah. what are your thoughts? So, uh, v- very similar to that. And, and Al, as you, as you were talking about it, I was thinking about, you know, you, you brought up team of teams, you brought up, uh, shit, what was the other one? A- uh, Agile. Agile. It, yeah, yeah, yeah. And, you know, I, I, one of the questions I had in the back of my head was I, I wanted you to expand on your thoughts around the Agile Manifesto being too narrow, but we're, we're kind of naturally getting that conversation. But a lot of this was just around organizational alignment and the flexibility to restructure, or in other words, re, reprocess things to, to fit the, the new goals. Um, in, in, I think one of the, the things that came out a lot of that book was you had clear, I'm thinking of team of teams, right? The, the clear end state, the commander's intent, right? Um, what was General McChrystal's end state and yeah. how was he allowing the space for the teams to self-organize and figure that out, right? Yeah. In scrum terms, right? Making cross-functional teams, right? Teams that had good lines of communication going between them, all aligned and ultimately serving a, a higher level objective. Yeah, you know, you you said something uh, the other Jeff that struck a chord when you said it. That like it's like one of those. Well, that's obvious, but it wasn't obvious until you said it. You know what I mean? Um, and, and that was accountability, because when I talk about you have these teams that are working in a network, and you need to have alignment. I've often talked a lot about alignment. You know, like something comes in and 
two or three teams are needed to work together about alignment. And it gets pretty clear that the business needs to provide that alignment. It hadn't occurred to me about accountability because in, when you think about that, that's also required. I mean, that's what you were saying. I'm, I'm reflecting yep. when I yep. think about yep. it. You know, I hadn't yep. thought about it before. You said it. And is, is that when we have a network of teams, we might have primary responsibilities, but alignment and accountability goes across the organization. Teams don't get to pick what they want to be accountable for. That's, that's an organization thing. And in the agile space, we've somewhat eschewed any sort of governance. And I'm going to suggest that's a serious mistake in, in that, you know, like waterfalls always, I'm going to use waterfall as the analogy, then I'll come back to governance. That, okay, so waterfall is not good. But what you want to pay attention to is what's not good about it. I would suggest that all of the intentions of waterfall are excellent, are wonderful. We'd like to know what our product is. We'd like to know when it'll go out the door. We want to know that it's passed all the tests and things we've got. We want to know what it's going to cost us. We want to know what people I need. Oh, you want to know that stuff. Now, you may or may not be able to know it, but that you want to know it is a good thing. What's bad about waterfall is not the intention. What's bad about waterfall is the implementation. It's a horrible implementation approach. And personally, I think waterfall is never good. I've, I've, I've written blogs on this, that if you have to choose between waterfall and scrum, that's because you're at, you're making, you're making bad choices. Not, I could put anything in there. What are your uh, thoughts of using waterfall? If you're in the simple space from of Kinevin, like a, we're building a bridge. We've done this bridges a hundred times. We have a design phase. We have a, you know, we're planning it. And then we do this, you know, implementation okay. and testing. So phase. I would say even then I wouldn't, I wouldn't do scrum. I wouldn't do something else, but why use waterfall? See, then you're locking yourself into two things are exactly the same when maybe they are, maybe they're not. See, the question is, do you take a preset solution to a problem? And in waterfall, you would say, oh, well, I know what all the problems are and I'll go do it. See, I like to look at, well, what is effective? So like in, and let's continue with this in, in the sense that in waterfall, uh, you can, if you're in a place like I'm building a bridge, then perhaps I've, my risks are lower and I could, you know, do things with a little less risk and maybe buy more materials ahead of time. But if you take a lean approach or a flow approach that says, what I want to do is lower the delays in my workflow, have explicit, uh, workflow so people can see what we're doing. Uh, I have low, low uncertainty or I have certainty uh, in, in an environment like building a bridge, but why not have visibility? Why not have always looking at getting materials just in time? I then lower my inventory. So even when you do something over and over and over again, there's real advantage of taking the mindset of I'm going to add value quickly. And it's funny you say building a, you do a bridge. Let's do building a road. I think building an asphalt road on flat ground it doesn't get any simpler than that in terms of not having odd things happen. And yet I've seen it done two different ways. Uh, in the United States, I can, I forget where this was. I was, uh, I forget where it was, but anyway, I'm driving along. It was, it wasn't at my home. I'm driving along and there's now road construction. And, um, uh, what was like two lanes is now one lane or what was four lanes is now two lanes. And I mean, we are inching along and we're inching along for like two miles and it is like painful. And then all of a sudden it opens up 
And this whole two miles, they're repaving the road for a whole two miles, which is absurd. The reason they do it that way is they pay less equipment on, on it. They rent a thing for two days to do, you know, what they do. And I was thinking, man, you know, if they built this in little bits at a time, I'd have been slow for, you know, 10 minutes instead of slow for an hour or two hours. Now, they don't do that in, in Japan. Uh, in Japan, they build a section like almost overnight and then another section almost overnight and then another section almost overnight. They don't have much work in process, so to speak. They, they are about you do it and you complete it, you do it and complete it, you do it and complete it. And so waterfall, people talk about waterfall like simple. It's like, okay, I understand that and there's no risk. So in a non-risk situation where waterfall would fail, that doesn't mean because now I have no risk, excuse me, in a high-risk situation where waterfall would fail, the fact that I might have a no-risk situation, that doesn't mean waterfall is good. doesn't mean it's the best way. It's just kind of the normal way. And I have to say this also about Kinevin, which is an interesting thing, because I'm, I'm kind of... So this is not an attack on Kinevin. I think Kinevin is a huge amount of good because most people don't appreciate that there are things like simple or now obvious in the Kinevin framework and complicated and complex and that you're either in chaos or you're not, not either. In, you might be in chaos or you might be in discord where you don't know what you're in and all that. And, and that people are learning. The fact that they're learning, you've got to attend to feedback and stuff like that. That's fine. But you know what? There, there are two things about it that sometimes worry me about that. One is you don't really know if something's simple or complicated or complex. Things off and the elephant shift. That's the whole idea. Can even go from complex to complicated and things like that. But you talk to executives; they don't want to hear this. I mean, you know, they, it's not what they think about. And then you have to start wondering where you are. And then I always distrust. I mean, I've been in situations. I've been fortunate. And some of them I just walked into, some of them I created myself. But I've been in situations that were considered unsolvable. The very first job out of MIT was uh, working on a problem at IBM Research. I was the grunt programmer, so I'm not taking any claim for any of the intellectual stuff. But this was considered not only impossible, but when we completed it, probably the most complex problem ever solved by a computer. It was a precursor to neural nets. So I was working with a guy who was just totally brilliant and a professor from... Um, a Rockefeller University, there's got IBM Research and this guy Rockefeller University were kind of the brainchild of all this. And I was the Fortran programmer. They would tell me what to do and I would write the programs. I was a fast programmer. Fortunately, they was, these were one-shot programs because back then I could write fast, but it was crappy code. Uh, I learned that 10, 15 years later, how to do better code. But the point is, is that a lot of the reason, and it's funny, this ties in, the reason I bring this up, is it ties into this normal you know, years ago, the thought of bug-free code was like unthinkable. And not to me, but it was, uh, and, and believe me, it wasn't unthinkable to me because I'd written any. <laughs> I just believed it was possible. Uh, in fact, I got into my whole improvement mechanism in 80, 83, 84. I asked myself the question, in 84, I remember this. I asked myself, what was I doing? I said, L. Well, I remember, I remember I had a bug. I can't remember what the bug was, but I remember I, I wrote a bug where I discovered a bug and I looked at it and I said, oh, I found the bug. And, and I noticed, Al, listen to how you're talking about this. You found it. You're the only guy that's ever been in this code. You know, like, I, you know what I mean? Like, you find it? No, I put it there. So I asked myself, I realized that we, I talked about bugs like somebody else was putting them in. You know, like testing broke my code or gremlins are coming in. 
And, and, and I realized, well, that's weird. Why did I put it in? So I asked myself that question back in 1984. Believe me, this was not the first bug I'd ever written. And, and I started asking the question, what was I doing when I put a bug in my code? And I mean, up to this point, I'd been reading books about how to write better programs and things like that. I mean, I wasn't, uh, you know, I wasn't a new learner. I got a master of science in computer, a master degree in computer science from MIT. So I've been through this and I knew probably 10 languages by this point. But I started asking, what was I doing? Why did I put it in? It wasn't intentional. I wasn't looking for job security. Uh, I don't think many bugs go in that way. And I noticed different distractions, lousy coding techniques. You know, I just thought about something else, you know, whatever it was. And I started, I decided, well, I ought to write them. You know, I figured I'd have 10, you know, things I was doing. About a month later, I had, you know, those big yellow sheet pads, you know, with the legal pad. I had about 25 sheets, 50 lines, 25 sheets. That's, that's every time I had a new idea. I, I don't know why I didn't put it in, in Word or something, but every time i would just pull out that pad and write and, and about a month later i've got this whole pad of yellow sheets with different things about what i was doing i said oh my god you know this is ridiculous so then i started wondering well what could i do not to do that and i found out that well nothing was going to stop me from writing bugs uh and i still believe that nothing stops me from i'm i've got skills you know when people tell me directions say you can't miss it i said you have no idea of my skills here same thing with writing bugs i write bugs I eventually gave up trying not to write bugs. And what I realized was it was the discovery that I'd written a bug, finding a bug was the killer. That if I could find a bug like that, I could fix it like that. And it was almost just like a typo. And nowadays it is like that. You know, you type in the clips and tells you immediately what's going on. I used to work, I learned Algol with two turnarounds a day, three days, a, two days a week, uh, as I was having to go across town. So there's this, how do you look at it? How do you take responsibility? How do you own it? And how do you not accept the normal? Okay, this is the way it is, but does it have to be? People write crappy code, yes, but they don't have to. People can't estimate, yes. I, I, I don't want to get into all estimation, no estimation. I personally believe that most estimation is lousy, and I agree that sometimes it's not worth doing because management's going to screw you over with it. Mm -hmm. But then that's saying I'm not doing something because I got another problem I'm not solving. Bad coding, it causes unpredictability. So the thing with the thing with uncertainty is what do we have a handle on? I'm just kind of trying to wrap this up. I know I kind of go off like this sometimes. But the thing is well, uncertainty is there are constraints. There are things we can do. There's some things we know about. And then how do we work on those? And um, I've been reading this book called The Choice. Not the choice, sorry. I read that book. That was brilliant. Uh, Ellie Goldratt, highly recommended. It's actually as impactful to me as the goal was. Um, uh, he wrote this in 2009, The Choice. Um, but I, is Blink. Um, I forget who wrote Blink. Uh, the guy who wrote, uh, oh, I don't know. You know, he, he's written a lot of just his stuff's amazing. And in Blink, he's starting to point out how there are insights you get in complex situations, just like you would not think that this one little thing would give you an answer in a complex situation by definition, but it does. Um, and I think there's a lot of this stuff out there, but we don't even look for it anymore because our oh, complex, complex adaptive systems, we can't predict it and all that or black swan events. Those are all good, but you know, that's out of our control. We're in a software company, like what you related, that example you related. 
something happened external, but you had control internal and you responded. So it's not like we're totally out of control. Yeah. What I liked about that story about the bugs is that you kind of just created your own frequency chart and said, well, I'm assuming what you did is you you said, oh, these are the most common patterns that I'm seeing of when I create yeah, bugs. Yeah. How do I get rid of these? Yeah, that's what I did after I had this huge amount. I mean, I I thought it would be a few because I'm a great programmer, of course. How many, how many mistakes do I make? <laughs> but no, not the case. I had hundreds. So then I did an affinity map. And I said, well, these are kind of related and these are kind of related. And then I found out, I don't know, I had about 30 different things. And um, I really didn't come up with a conclusion then because I, I, I'm, I'm a slow learner sometimes. I, I really am. I mean, I'm not saying that modestly. I'm not a modest guy. But it wasn't until XP came out that I really started recognizing that you could set up systems as a general way of being to make improvements. Because here, I'll tell you my second embarrassing. This is my most embarrassing thing. And it's also one of the things I'm most proud of. Same thing. Incredibly embarrassing, incredibly proud of it. So in 84, I was head of a small team working for as contractors to IBM. They were responsible for what was called the Vancouver 86. Uh, this was like a World's Fair in Vancouver in 1986. And it was going to be the world's first use of video disc touchscreen audio technology, which now are like your computer probably has it, you know. But but back in the day, I mean, I'm talking about the 14-inch Panasonic video players. You know, this stuff was, you know, you weren't even born yet, I think, when this stuff came out. Uh, and and it was it was really cool. You know, now you walk into a, a lobby of a building and, you know, you've got the equivalent maybe of what we built. Back then, they were building these kiosks, like of about eight stations. So you'd walk in and you see all the restaurants or all the exhibits and all this. And it was all cool, touchscreen. And, and we were building this. And I thought, oh, this is going to be simple. All I was doing was taking basic code and converting it to C. I mean, it's just a translation. I mean, they've done it before. I just have to make it go faster and all this. And I was like, no problem at all. So I start writing the system. I'm the guy who's writing the authoring system, and I've got somebody else who's writing the playing system. And for about a week or two, it's fast. Like I said, I'm a fast coder, so I'm coding and all this stuff's working. Everybody's happy. And then they make a change in the design. And uh, so I go in and I make my change and I give it back to them. And they say, well, now that's that worked, but now this is broken. And it seemed that every time I changed something, I broke something else. And this goes on for about a week. And I say to myself, you know, Al, we're, you're in trouble. You know, there is no way you're going to be able to stay on top of this. If every time you take a step forward, you take a step back or maybe two steps forward and a step back. But I was it was not working. And I thought about it and I said, the problem isn't the bug and the problem isn't fixing the bug. The problem is all the thought that goes around it and all the bad decisions. And I, I'm not a very good chess player and I have what I call the queen syndrome. Uh, now in chess, for those of you who don't know, the queen is like the premier player. The king is actually, you've got to keep your king to win, but of the players that you play and use and kill other opponents, uh, players, and, you know, lose some. You don't want to lose the queen. Most powerful, more powerful than any other player, more, any more, any combination of two other players, as a matter of fact. So I play chess. The way I play chess is I'll play chess and I'll look for a move and I'll think about it and say, oh, I can't do that because uh, I'll lose my queen. And then I'll think five, ten minutes and I still haven't gotten the choice. And then I'm now real frustrated. I got to make a move. And I, and I remember that. I look at, well, why don't I do that move? And um, 
I said, I don't know. I, I, I thought of this before and I didn't like it, but doesn't seem anything wrong with it. Uh, it doesn't feel right, but I got to do something. So I move it and then I lose my queen because I spent all this in, and I'd forgotten that analysis. So there's all this thrashing in the head. And I thought about this. I said, you know, if I could tell I made a bug right then and there, I could fix it just like that. It's the delay. So what I did is I put in an automated testing system. It took me all the day. Uh, what in, in DOS, this goes back to the day. In DOS, you had interrupts and I could capture keystrokes, you know, easily. And I, what I did was I would just capture the keystrokes of it when we ran something and tested it. Forget about interchanging, you know, separating user interfaces from code. I didn't know that in those days. Uh, and I would capture them all. And what I do is I have a good starting database and a good ending data set. And I would run these keystrokes through automatically. And if it failed, I knew I did something wrong. And I didn't know what failed. I just know it did fail. But I could be sure it, whatever I did in the last 15 minutes is why it failed. And I could remember 15 minutes. So I put this system in. And we hired a guy to do nothing but run these tests. And it was brilliant. And all of a sudden, I was just bearing along. I didn't slow down my seed. Nowadays, I'd have thought, Al, why are you writing the bugs? In those days, I was just, how do you catch them? So like I said, I'm a slower. So you could say, well, Al, that sounds pretty impressive. I told you it's my proudest movement. What's embarrassing about that? When do you think, this was in 84, when do you think the next time I did automated testing was? Was it a decade later? I was going to say, yeah. Probably. 1999, <laughs> when I found out about XP. I was going to say, when Kent Beck released his book. No, exactly. That's what it took. And I actually wondered about that. I said, Al, how could you? I mean, I'm a decently smart guy. And the reason was this. Was I, so I, I mean, I looked at this. I really wondered, you know, not, you know, I wondered like in 2000, 2001, I was reflecting on this. I said, well, this is really amazing. And what I realized was that up until, oh, I don't know exactly when, but up until around the late 19, you know, the end of the 20th century, I would look at how to solve things. And somewhere uh, in the late 90s, I started looking at systems as a systems thinking approach. So I went from one-off success to a systems approach and patterns. Not coincidentally, now that I think about it, it really what happened is in 97 is when I read Timeless Way Building and saw patterns. So it was like, in other words, if I had known patterns in 97, when I solved this testing problem, I would have thought of it as an instance of a pattern, as the forces. See, Alexander says, pattern, it's funny, he's the one everybody says, well, he says patterns are solutions to recurring problems in a context. But at the end of his book, he says that's not what's useful. Um, I joke about that. Four pages, five page 545 in his book. 549 page book. He says, at this point, you discover the patterns aren't important. And I always say that. And I always joke, that, well, why didn't you tell me this on page two? I stopped reading this stuff. <laughs> and, and it's because he's, the next line says it all. And by the way, when you read that line, you say, yeah, I know. It's not news to you. The patterns have taught you to be receptive to what's real. What's real isn't the pattern. What's real are the forces the pattern solves. This is what we're talking about. Yeah, let me say it again. I see you guys thinking. Okay, yeah, I'm so, thinking about it. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so let's think about this. Let's. This is the new normal in a sense. Let's look at. Let's look at. Let's look at. Let's look at this whole thing that started with divergent, convergent UXs. Okay. Or let's look at taking responsibility. I mean, we could do either one of those. Uh, there, 
there are practices. But what are the issues the practices are solving? Is there a better way to solve those issues? Now, this doesn't discount the practices, doesn't discount the patterns. Those are useful. But if you can get underneath it, let, I'll take Scrum as an example, because I think most people here are more interested maybe in the process. So, so Scrum has got this fabulous, the thing I love most about Scrum is the power of the cross-functional team. It's just remarkably powerful. Um, and I'll admit, I didn't actually appreciate it for a long time. I mean, I could see it was good. It was obvious you had people together and all that. But Steve Denning actually is the guy who really got me to, to, to get this. He was working with the Scrum Alliance. And I asked him, I said, hey, why are you working with the Scrum Alliance? And he said, he does it now, but that's another story. But he said, he said the Scrum community, and this was years back, I, I don't know, uh, 2000, a decade ago, 12, 15 years ago. And he said the Scrum Alliance is the only group at the time in Agile. And I, I agree with his assessment. Now, I, I wasn't sure at the time, but it didn't take me long to agree with him. That really gets the power of the team. That explicitly talks about it. Now, XP got it, but they didn't talk about it the same way. You know, So it wasn't like Scrum came up with it, but Scrum as a community talked about it. And cross-functional teams are wonderful when they're applicable, which is 90% of the time, but not always. And the model of cross-functionality is useful, but as a team doesn't scale. And, and I think everybody's trying to do what works at the team to work across organizations, and it doesn't work because the forces are different. Ah, where the forces are manifest different, but think of what are the forces at teams. Well, you don't like handoffs. You don't like misunderstandings. You like to collaborate. You like to see how visible, the, you like to have visibility to work and how it's done. Although Scrum doesn't insist on agreements on how people work, everybody can do it their own way. You agree that we're working on what's on the backlog and things like that, but how do you pull things off the backlog? Is well, just let them figure it out kind of thing. Well, when you start looking at the issues that are there and then you can't get a cross-functional team, you're not left with, well, I, I, we won't have cross-functionality because we can't figure it out. You don't just disband or abandon the practice. You say, hey, wait a moment, wait a moment. Cross-functionality was doing something for us. Then, yeah, we couldn't get it to work, but what we need to get done still needs to get done. So what you want to do is say, how do we figure out another way to do it? You know, this is the idea of choose your way of working on discipline agile. So, you know, it's also that PMI bought just before they bought me. And one of the reasons I was actually, when I, I realized, I didn't really know that was what was going on, to be honest, I thought they were going to choose between us. I loved it when they brought us both in because they're, also of this attitude that you don't want a framework that tells you what to do. You want a mindset to look at and then have a choice, like a toolbox. That's what DA is about, is having a toolbox. And part of it is like, I got these issues. I got these forces. What do I do with it? Um, and I think this is really key. And this is what Alexander talks about is how do you, how do you look at these issues and these forces? And then he, that's interesting. That's what I wrote in my patterns explain book, but what gets more interesting is once I got into process and you start realizing his whole design approach of to code that people have transcribed to code, you can take that to process as well. What are the patterns in process? What are the issues in process? And now all of a sudden you've got this really, really complex thing called an organization. And yet you see the issues in that organization are um, there are patterns there. You know, there are, there are forces there, there are issues there. 
And and I think what you mentioned, you know, I just was taking notes here. We talked about accountability and we talked about, you know, even suffering or not suffering um, is is some of these concepts can become constraints that we're going to say, well, we're going to live this way with this. We're we're not going to um, like not be accountable. You know, we have an accountability constraint that we have to figure out how to do it. But how do you do it is up to the company. Yeah. And I think asking the company, like, what do you want to optimize for is really important because, yeah. and then when you, and you say that, like, let's just say it's for, they want to be able to change quickly and they want to be able to solve business problems rapidly. You know, they want to deliver high value to the market. Okay. What's getting in your way? What decisions are you making today that are getting in the way of that? Because you are making decisions right now today. Maybe it's the way you're organized back to your point. Maybe it's the way you have governance laid out. Maybe it's something else, but there's something in that system that's not aligned to that optimizing goal. And let's discover those things so we can change that, right? Like that's, I think what, um, I know we've said this on the podcast before, but you know, when you say yes to something, you also say no to a lot of other things. And a lot of times that's not conscious. And so I think highlighting that in the system is really important. Back to your point of um, it's not cross-functionality that you want. It's frequent delivery and it's, I, w- I want low delays and I want low and I want high collaboration and I want to take advantage of different knowledge that different people have because we have really complex systems and things that we're delivering. And I need a lot of people's minds working on this thing in a collaborative way without delay. And so like, how do I do that? Cross-functional so me, is one way to do that, right? But there's yeah. other ways too. So let me, let me ask you a question because you, you, you seem like you really perceived a lot of these things and, and I... Like I said, I, I tend to get a little OCD on, on some things. Uh, so one of the things is this whole eliminate waste mantra. This is another thing I think has been counterproductive. It's a, a, like a red herring. See, to me, waste is a byproduct. It's a symptom. It's not the cause. Uh, almost all waste. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to throw this out there and people can tear it to shreds, which would be a good thing because then I'd learn something. But I would suggest almost all waste, especially knowledge work and software development, is due to a delay of some sort, either a delay in workflow, a delay in making a bug and discovering. Remember the automated testing? I didn't write code any better, but I went a lot faster because I detected errors quicker. And in fact, I can't find one thing that's not going back to a delay. But I, so I, that's why I put almost in. But my belief is always. Now, let's just throw it out there. Always. Well, it gets a little sketchy because it could be skill sets and things like that. But if you're competent, virtually always is due to delays in workflow or discovering something or, you know, getting information and not using it for a while. That's waste because then you got to refigure, you know, old requirements, things like that. And so I focus on delay, not on waste, because waste is a byproduct of delays in my mind. My question is this. I think the language we use and the way we talk about our problems like oh here's the bug you know like i found the bug like i found the bug okay i found the bug i had nothing to do with it it's not my i didn't do it you know i get get uh um you know simpson out there you know bark out there i didn't do it um but when you when you say no i wrote the bug and what was i doing that opens up a whole new vehicle and i found something so i'm wondering what your thoughts on being kind of OCD, I'm being very precise here. Is that useful to you? Is is uh, how would you convey? Yeah, that I, th- to you? 
I think finding that underlying cause of what you're optimizing for and what it's linked when it's linked to other things helps you trace back to why something might not fit. Um, but does the language thing and the way we speak about it. So do you have examples of how you speak about something made a difference? Cause you've got, you've mentioned a lot of other good examples. So I'm wondering if you've got examples about how you spoke about something made a difference. Like you actually gave one. I'm going to actually say you already gave one. Okay. <laughs> when you said something like, what do you want to optimize for? It all of a sudden put two things counter to each other. Okay, you want quick response? You know, it's not like, well, I can just optimize everything. It's this or that. Well, which do you want? Is that is that similar or am I stretching my I, point here? No, I think it's similar. I think uh, asking those powerful questions is one way to do that, right? To, to reveal the system to itself. And so, like, that's one way when I'm asking those, oh, like, what wow. are we optimizing for? Like... Let's try to let people who are in the system say, let's make a conscious decision because we can say like values and have things on our walls that you walk by every day and not live them. But like, let's, let's make this really specific and, and align around that constantly and make conscious choices um, and how we do things within our organizations. I guess that's where I was going with that. And so I think the wording there is more along the lines of trying to get people to, um, think for themselves and not have it be told to them. Because like we, we could articulate back and forth. Well, yeah, you want to be thinking about delay. You want to be thinking about this. We could talk about, you know, batch sizes and all kinds of things, like why you want small batch sizes. But until they see it and feel it and know like why that's so important, I don't know that they're going to like yeah. take it to heart and make a change around it. I know. What are your thoughts on that? Well, I, I think it's true. I think, I think something was popping into my head while, you were saying this. I, I liked how you said reveal the system to itself. It's actually reveal ourselves to ourselves. And and um, so I think I think that that underlies a lot of this. See, there's an interesting observation. This is something I got when I worked with Fernando Flores, the guy said who taught me a lot about languaging. Um, is is that victims and martyrs are really the same? Okay, so like if I'm a victim, it's like, oh, my boss is like, oh, he's horrible. He does this, he does that. My life is miserable. Whereas if I'm a martyr, it's like, oh, my boss is horrible. He does this, he does that, but I'm strong enough and I will overcome it. But in both cases, I don't have responsibility. In both cases, I'm at the effect. In one case, I'm overcoming it. In one case, I'm not overcoming it. But there's no responsibility. And and in some sense, maybe that's part of this new, this normal I'm talking about. Is it, so that's just the way it is. I'm not accountable. That's just the way it is. And the problem, though, I see, this might be worth another podcast because I'm going to have to go pretty soon. But here's the problem. And this, this is why I like having these conversations. because It's not like I know the answers here. But I'm a big believer in perspective and how you approach something. And one of the things that's bugged me like I said, in the Agile Manifesto, it was the team and the perspective of the team. And that's useful, but it was limiting. And for years, it's been frameworks. We have the solution and we're going to give it to you. And sure, if you can do it, it works. But that doesn't mean it's the right solution. See, I don't like coming from solutions. I like I don't even like coming from problems. Well, what else is there? There's problems and there's solutions. Well, there is something else. See, problems aren't really problems. That's what people don't get. It took me years to get this, but I didn't figure this out. This is again from Fernando Flores. Problems are only problems in the context of something you're trying to accomplish. 
An example I like to use is there's this universal problem of flashing blue and red lights in your back, in your back, you know, your rearview mirror as a policeman's about to do something, you know, or give you a ticket or something. That's a problem. I mean, that's just a problem. And not really. Um, if you're trying to get to the hospital and you might be driving safely, but going fast and your wife is in labor, you think, oh, thank God, this policeman will help me. You know, so there's there's the differences. In the first case, you don't want to get, you have a commitment not to lose time and lose money. In the second case, you've got this, I want my wife to be safe. So, so I like to look at what are people up to? What are they committed to? What's their intention? And then all this other stuff kind of happens. So somehow that is like, am I being, I, I'm looking at, am I driving from this when I'm helping other people? But a lot of it is, what am I up to? You know, when we talk about learning, am I just solving problems all the time or am I looking to see, well, what am I trying to do? You said this, you, what, you said something like this earlier about getting the intention out, you know, yeah, like that's, see, that's great. You're actually, well, what are you guys up to? Don't tell me what you're trying to solve. Don't tell me what issues you've got. What are you up to? What are you committed to? What are you going to make happen? Then the rest of the stuff fits into play. And and this is what, what I think Alexander meant. It's not solutions to recurring problems in a context. Is what are the issues that are out there? How do you resolve those issues? And so is it, is it not so much the issues? Is it more what are what's the goal or what are you uh, what's well, the objective the that issues? you're trying to hit? Yeah, and then I mean, that, you'll, the you'll identify the issues after that. I like that. I like that. Yeah, these are issues because of the things you're trying to have happen. You know, like in Alexander, one of my favorite examples is he talks about a courtyard. He says a courtyard is, uh, you know, you've got a place where you want to look out. You've got these, you know, it's a semi-enclosed place, though, but not totally enclosed where people have walking paths and things like that. And when you look at the issues that are there, the forces that are there, they're all about human nature. We want to feel comfortable. We want to have some movement. We want to feel safe. And, you know, but they're all there because it makes us comfortable. You know, we're trying to find a place where we're comfortable and all that. And all the patterns, all the patterns he talks about, but those are patterns in designer like that. Um, so, so I think we've got enough here. And I, I but I, I want to ask you a couple of questions for maybe a follow up because I like, I like how today went. But let me ask you a little bit. Tell me a little bit about yourselves because I've got some, in, I've got some weird idea in my mind. And we could do it anyway, regardless of your background. But I want to get your background first, and then I'll tell you my weird idea. Sure. Um, so Jeff and I actually have pretty similar backgrounds. Um, we both started off in development. Jeff was more in game development. I was just a bad developer, and I just <laughs> realized it wasn't for me. I like the people side of things better, so I jumped more into the... I don't know, more the business side of stuff. Um, I had my Death Marth Waterfall days and found a better way of working. Um which was agile. We got into consulting was more of a product owner, scrum master, more on the scrum master side of things. And then product owner and got into coaching and learning a lot more about Kanban and lean and other stuff, other scaling frameworks. Um, I think Jeff, the other thing, I don't know, you can add some more background about yourself. You get your army background, right? Like, um, what were you in the army? Um, I was, uh, Wisconsin army national guard. So I was, Part of the 357 out of Two Rivers, Wisconsin. I was a, a signal officer, both a platoon leader and then XO. And then I became a battalion S6 for the 121 Field Artillery oh. Battalion out of Milwaukee, Wisconsin. 
Cool. But when you were when we were talking earlier, you know, down at the the hundred first, so I, I I went down to to Benning. So that Benning's House for Boys is where I got my commission as, as an officer. Okay. So got to see Ranger School, got to see the Airborne area. So cool. Yeah. Well, thanks for your service too. So what part when you did games? What did you do in the game field? Uh, mobile game development. So if you if you had a V three, you know, back in uh, 2005 through 2007, if you played a game on your on your phone, there's a good chance that I I ported it over. So um, getting it running out on any of the devices that were out there, uh, they called it the deck, but any any system that you had to download. Cool. So uh, binary runtime environment for wireless, which is Brew, and then J2ME. So so let me tell you this weird idea, and and don't indulge me, but if you if you're interested, this might be you got you guys with your background might be actually interesting case study. So when I learned how to do UXs and UIs, it was back, this was 83 to 85. I, I was seriously in the personal development movement back then. I had kind of a life-changing event called the S-Train, which was a bit airy-fairy and all that, and a little cultish as well. But I got really into it because I used to be incredibly introverted. I was the epitome. There's, there's a joke I heard at, at IBM when I was there. and I, I didn't realize I was that bad out of touch. I didn't even realize they were talking about me, but it was like, what's the difference between an introverted programmer and an extroverted programmer? An extroverted programmer looks at your shoes. <laughs> so I was an introverted programmer. I mean, people have a hard time believing that, but in 83, up to 83, I was an introverted programmer. And I took this workshop that shifted a lot for me. But anyway, I learned, in this languaging, these workshops, and something I did with Fernando Flores, that communication is not this, I say something to you and you hear it. Rather, I say something, you hear what I say, but it represents what I mean. It isn't what I mean. You have no idea what I mean, unless we have some sort of shared understanding, and then we'll hit. By the way, the best, there's a movie about this, although it was really just a comedy, but it has it embedded in it. They must have done what they were doing. It's called The Gods Must Be Crazy. If you've not seen it, watch it and watch it with where the hell is meaning taking place because it's not taking place in the words or what's out in the world. In fact, this whole idea is that we are creating our own reality around us and our understanding and we're conveying what we hope to convey to the person next to us. And I had this revelation in the midst of this work with this kind of languaging and stuff. And the revelation was that when you write computer software, you don't want to, to interact as a system to the person, but the person is giving you something they want done. And then you have to almost pretend like you're in the box and you're interpreting it. And as a user, you're asking, what is it they're asking me for? You're not trying to anticipate what they're asking you for. That causes, I hate software that does that because they're always anticipating wrong. You're looking, like if somebody said, says, which goes first, 9X or 1-0? Hell, no person in their right mind would put 9X after 1-0. But a system will because that's how the system is designed. So I would write very good UXs. And I'm talking, here's the proof. In the 80s, I wrote software for people who had never touched a computer before. I'm talking to hairstylists in the 80s. Never touched a computer before. Hated computers. 
they only needed 15 minutes to learn how to use my system and they could use it. And the reason is it was totally designed the way they would expect it to interact. And you see this at times. Like I had an experience with Spotify today that I loved. It was some, such a simple thing. But I have all these playlists and it's like, gee, it'd be really great if I have this music I'm looking at. I could just drag this thing over to the playlist instead of having to click the button that says add the playlist and then pick the playlist, which is how I've always done it. I said, you know, I like Spotify. Maybe they did this right. And I dragged it. It worked. See, that's as a human, I would have expected that. And yet most systems won't do that. They'll say, no, you got to do this. And they'll have a whole help for you and all that. And even the helps are messed up. Because if you're asking for help, if I ask you for help and I said, hey, Jeff, can you tell me how to get someplace? You don't just say, yeah. And then don't say anything else. You know, you take me there or you do something. Whereas most computer systems, even if they have a help, this is getting better. In the last few years, people now sometimes they'll click and they'll take you to the place. But in that hair salon system, that's what it did. If you had help, you'd ask a question. It would put up what to do. And guess what? You click it and you would do it. Why have to? Oh, now you got to go down here and find out why. So when you write. So here's my here's my topic. This I've been getting more and more interested in this. And I think this tweet I mentioned has triggered it. See, I know that writing really good UXs is something that can be not first time, but doesn't take a lot of effort, but it takes a different perspective. So I've shifted. I've done that myself. I've seen other people do it. Richard uh, Sheridan in the uh, arch, you know, software archaeologist or whatever they call it. Yeah. High-end anthropologist. Yeah. He's doing the same thing. He talks about it a different way, but he's doing the same thing. Uh, I mean, I did not, you know, I, I had this revelation, but I had help from other, not him in this. I did this in the 80s, but I've had help from other books. My question is, what would it take to shift people into this? I don't think it's easy, but it would be an interesting conversation to have. So I'm just going to throw that out there. If, if we ever do a second one or you want to do a second one, I'd be interested in that conversation if you're interested in that conversation. Yeah. And I've really yeah. enjoyed this conversation. This has been a lot of fun. And it's actually, I took some notes. It's helped me clarify some things. Great. Of course. Yeah. Well, thanks. Thanks for coming on. Um, I think we can dive into that UX conversation at another point. Yeah. Uh, but I think we we touched on it right a little bit earlier yeah. with the the that tweet storm. Um, <laughs> is there anything you want to plug or anything like that? Any way that well, people can yeah, connect actually, with you? Thanks. Yeah, I actually meant to say something. If you like, if you like what I'm saying, if you like the ideas that it's uh, looking at the problems in the context of what you're trying to accomplish and getting clear on things, and that. We don't have to live in this normal, well, things are complex, so we can't know what to do. I didn't touch on this, but there's all sorts of things that I have looked at that there are patterns you can look at. There's what, what um, Goldrack calls inherent simplicity. I believe we have a lot more power, a lot more possibility of getting things done. And one of the things I'm very excited about with working at the PMI, having brought together Disciplined Agile and Flex, you know, the work I've done is that we're really trying to get to the truth of it. We're really trying to get it there. We're not trying to come up with just another framework. Uh, there is no framework here. DA is a toolkit. Flex is an approach to look at your issues. And how do you continuously learn? And I'm always inviting people to show me where I'm wrong because guess what? Then I learn. That's what scientific method is about. You know, That's why I'm always unhappy with other people's work. They, I, I mean, I'm not trying to bash them. I'm well, trying to bash the ideas. I'm not trying to bash the people. But... You, you want to bash ideas when they're wrong. If, if an idea is wrong, you, you should actually, you know, my response used to be, oh, that really doesn't feel so good, but thank you. 
And now it's just thank you. I've 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 just learned that just let let the emotion out. You just learn something that's useful. And yeah, I mean I'm not saying there's not fleeting moments of it, but uh, you want to learn. And if you're interested, follow me on LinkedIn uh, or Al Shalloway on Twitter. And I'm always looking for people. Like I said, I don't have to worry about. I do have to worry about my getting work done, but I'm not worried about getting paid for things I do. And I, I like talking to people, as you can tell now. Uh, yeah, so I'd plug that. I'd, I'd say check check out the new PMI with Disciplined Agile and Flex because I think you're going to see some surprising things. And while we're building, I'm not saying trust me. I'm saying if this is interesting and you want to learn more, just just talk to us. And uh, you don't have to jump on. I just like talking to people. That's how I discover discover what's useful. So that, that'd, be it. that'd be it. That's all I really need to say. Awesome. That's great. Well, thanks for coming on, Al. Hey, we really appreciate you. Yeah, it's fun. Thank you for listening to the Agile Wire. We are consistently inspecting and adapting ourselves. We would appreciate feedback at feedback at theagilewire.com or on iTunes, Spotify, or Google Play Store. See you next time.